Hey there, Interweb. Uh, we're going to have another road trip. Uh, this time we're, we've been invited by uh, listener Scott Phillips uh, to the Coonan Brewing Company at 26,000 Grossbeck Road in Clinton Township, Michigan. Uh, we're going to be meeting there at on June 7th at 7.30 p.m. Uh, so I uh, hope to see you there. And you can find details about that at the website, graceontap-podcast.com. And if you would like to be like Scott... And everybody wants to be like Scott. And you ho- want to host a future road trip of Grace on Tap, sh- shoot us an email at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. In February of 1519, Luther took pen in hand and wrote to his friend, John Staupitz, who Luther hadn't seen since the fall of 1518 when Staupitz ran away from Augsburg, leaving Luther alone with the Roman representative, Cardinal Cajetan. Luther wrote, Charles Miltitz has seen me at Altenburg. He complained that I have pulled the whole world to my side and alienated it from the Pope. He said he explored all the inns, discovered that among five people, there are hardly three or two who favored the Roman party. Now, Miltitz was referencing a little reconnaissance work that he had done while he traveled between Rome and Germany on his way to meet Luther. The Pope had promoted him to the position of ambassador to either get Luther to recant his position or to bring Luther back to Rome as a prisoner. During the trip from Rome to Germany, Miltitz realized that the people of Germany mostly sided with Luther. Miltitz knew that he had his work cut out for him. Maybe there was a third way between recanting and prison. As Miltitz approached his meeting with Luther, he decided he was now ready to seek this third way. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagley. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a a podcast where we go through history and the people surrounding various documents of the Lutheran Reformation. Now, today's episode isn't going to really focus on any specific document, but instead it's going to focus on, at least the first part of it, it's going to focus on Karl von Miltitz. Uh, he was a character mentioned over and over again in Luther's writings and uh, in many Reformation-era documents. It's uh, something that... So who, who was Miltitz? Miltitz is... Uh, first of all, he's kind of a guy who didn't do so well in Latin, wasn't going to advance uh, as a... Anybody on his own. He works his political connections, though, to get something special. Starting with, he was born in 1490 in Robinau, Germany, near Dresden. So he's a pretty young guy, right? He's, he's young. Um, he's seven years younger than, right, than Luther. Yeah, 1490, that puts him at this, about this time, he's roughly coming up on 30. Yeah. And uh, he is uh, has a political mission that he is on. Um, his father had died before he was born. He grows up in a tough position. There's really no one that's going to advocate for him in the family business. And so he's hoping for a career in the church to advance himself. But now a career in the church is, is for him, usually it doesn't succeed when you aim for the ambition. It, the ambition's got to find you. The church has got to find you. Uh, over and over in history, those who are really spectacular in the life of the church, they don't seek it out. That happens in business. I mean, in, in business, you get a, a lot of, you know, pe- a lot of people are ambitious, right? Um, uh, but you, you have to have the, the, the desire, the, the, um, the passion for what you're doing. 
to really succeed. And and I, and Church is obviously no different. So, so, so what he does is he gets his spot uh, in the papal court through the influence of his uncle, who was a noted friar, which is similar to a monk. Luther was a friar. And so he had a couple of jobs. Both of them are rather nominal. They're important in their name, but they're not so important in their substance. So, so now the, the first job, at least in my research, that he had was as a uh, papal notary, right? And, and from what that sounds like, at least what I was able to find, uh, it's somebody who uh, basically issues documents. He's sort I think of, of it kind of like a paralegal. He's okay. a canon lawyer that prepares um, and draws up official, authentic documents. Uh, they're going to be part of the administrative bureau of the the church. So, so, and then I, I assume, I, I see, you know, I, I have a Catholic background. My, 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 most of my family is Catholic, and you see, every so often you get these these letters written from the Pope, you know, th- you know that that are like. Oh, I don't know. You know, congratulations on your 50th wedding anniversary or something. And then the Pope signs it. I just watched uh, an episode of West Wing. And uh, Rob Lowe's character in the episode we just watched is supposed to write a birthday message from the president to the undersecretary of the Department of something. And it's and it's an example of that. The president's going to sign it. But it was written up by somebody else. And so so it sounds like, at least as far as I could tell, this is one of Milton's jobs, is to go through and write these things up, make sure that now more substantial than uh, than a birthday wish. But you know, something like, uh, I guess some of the examples that I had was, uh, you know, administrative stuff, uh, uh, different uh, different things, contracts, that sort of stuff, sort of. Like you said, a paralegal, where there is some... Someone's got to do it, and they're important roles. But I would imagine uh, Miltitz has this uh, growing vanity that they're maybe even his words. He forgets that he's crafting words that someone else is signing, and he thinks he's got his own voice, his own role, that he's going to be able to strike a path through this Lutheran controversy, this Luther guy, and, and... Come up to a solution that no one else has come up. So this is this is now this is Milton's jobs before his promotion. Yeah. So his, before his promotion, he was a he was a uh, a papal notary, but he had a second job, and that second job uh, they call him a titular chamberlain. So let's explain that first word. Titular is is just a title, a, a title position. Um, usually, if you say, for instance, Cajetan was the titular uh, priest at a church in Rome. Meaning that was by name where he was the priest, but Cajetan didn't serve there. Okay, okay. So, so what that basically means is that because the chamberlain, a, a papal chamberlain, when I was doing my research on this, the papal chamberlains would be like, oh, kings would be the papal chamberlains, and princes would be the papal chamberlains. And there's there's this whole. There's a there's an outfit that they wear, and there's a the goes into their there's a chain and all that they. It's a very uh, a position with a lot of honor. A lot of honor, exactly, and to, so it's sort of like you know this titular this word titular sort of undoes that honor. It makes it yeah. or at least so the chamberlain is really good. The yeah. titular chamberlain he gets to wear the costume, but otherwise not so much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's he's just a yeah he's sort of like a pretend chamberlain. So yeah. it's it's uh, uh, you know. It, so he had really an in, inconsequential jobs, but he seemed to really sort of 
you know, in his work with the Pope, he was able to maneuver into this very significant position of being... He, he did make it more significant by taking on and asking for the task of delivering the Golden Rose to Frederick the Wise and entering away, entering into Germany and, and no longer being a part of just this insular papal court in Rome. Um, maybe because he has a German background, the Pope sends him. Okay. Maybe he recruited himself for the position, but he's tasked with delivering the golden rose to Frederick the Wise. So, so what is this golden rose? Because this is something, and I don't know how many of our listeners watched the movie uh, Luther. The movie came out, I'm going to say, about 15 years ago. And very, it was a good movie. Mm-hmm. It, it actually covered a lot of the, a lot of this ground. Very entertaining, uh, especially for Lutherans. And uh, but it was very well done. But they they had this scene where they they bring in the golden rose, right? And you know Frederick the Wise gets it and he's like, ah, well, you know. But this golden rose was a big big deal. It was it was something at least you know when I was doing I was digging up what I could find on this golden rose, and it was really not very. It wasn't awarded very often. So you found twenty one times between fifteen hundred. In 1600, the Pope delivered a golden rose to someone as an act of honor. Uh, Recipients could include a church, a sanctuary, someone of royalty, a military figure, to a government. It could go to an institution or it could go to a person. Now, at least what I found, they had a list of everybody the rose went to for all time. Right. And, And so I was going through, I was looking through who it went to in the 1500s to try and get an idea of, well, who got these things? One of the things that was interesting was that King Henry VIII, who eventually broke from Rome and and created the Church of England, uh, got three golden roses. So it sounds like the golden rose was used by the popes in the 16th century to um, advance the position of Rome, to create and extend the Roman authority by saying, remember, you're a part of this. And so it confers honor, but it also is a little bit of a yoke, a reminder. I'm giving you something to remind you, you are a part of this church. Now, Henry VIII needed three of those, and still that wasn't enough. It's sort of interesting that, you know, the way the political ramifications of getting a golden rose, it's beautiful, it's important. But like you said, it's sort of as a yoke. It's like you know, okay, you're you're going to pull this wagon now, right? And that's 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 a at least between Henry VIII and Frederick the Wise, they saw it. At, you know, at least it seems like they they weren't really swayed. They understood the politics compared to if you give it to someone who is younger or someone who isn't as wise in what is happening in Europe, they may see this as just, wow, I'm special. I'm so important. He noticed me. Yay, he noticed me. But maybe these guys are smarter. So let's figure out, uh, maybe going back to episode six, um, understand the timeline of how we got to where we're at. Where are we at? Uh, The Diet of Augsburg uh, took place in the fall of 1518. Uh, Frederick the Wise, who is essentially Luther's governor, he's the noble that is in charge of Saxony. And his protector. He was basically protecting Luther from, well, essentially the Pope. Right. Yeah. And and while as Luther's being protected from the Pope by Frederick the Wise, Frederick the Wise has also given indication that 
he may support the Pope in who the next elector will, the next emperor will be. So, so go ahead. Well, this gets into uh, uh, Charles V of Spain, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Maximilian, let's take a, again, going back to episode six, Maximilian is the current emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He wants his grandson to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. And so he's maneuvering to get all the pieces in place before he dies. Uh, now, the, the problem is, is that the Pope does not want that for, for several reasons. And we're going to talk a lot more in the next episode about the politics of Charles V and Francis I and maybe Henry VIII and their roles in becoming the next Holy Roman Emperor. But the key thing is that the Golden Rose is being delivered to Frederick the Wise because Frederick the Wise has given indications that he may support the Pope if the Pope allows Frederick to do what he wants to do with Luther. Right. And so there's kind of this push and pull between the Pope and Frederick the Wise. Give me Luther. I'm not going to give you Luther. Give me. I'm going to give you my support for this. And And so there's some... Politics. There's horse trading. There's 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 political horse trading that's going on between the Pope and and Frederick the Wise, uh, between Luther, and then who's going to be the next emperor? And 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 Frederick is maneuvering, saying, "Listen, I'll I'll give you the the, the I'll give you my vote for the emperor if yeah you let me keep Luther." And it's okay. Now Miltitz was supposed to arrive at the same time as Cajetan. And kind of work a uh, good cop, bad cop sort of thing. Miltitz would be the good cop delivering the golden rose. Cajetan would be the bad cop uh, bringing a fatherly hearing, a fatherly hearing to Luther, trying to get him to recant. And that was actually sort of interesting because that whole fatherly quote, uh, I'm doing air quotes here for the, uh, but air quotes of fatherly hearing uh, is, uh, that was something that was negotiated by Frederick the Wise in the Diet of Augsburg of, of the in the fall of 1518. It sounds like the original plan was that Cajetan was going to be the heart, the the bad cop. He's going to be you know taken back to Rome. Uh, Luther, you're in trouble. You're going back to Rome with me. And Miltitz would step in with the golden rose and uh, bring maybe um, a political compromise. And somehow, uh, well, Miltitz arrives late. Yeah. And and that's so you know now the the Diet of Augsburg is gone. Luther has has skedaddled. Cajetan is furious, but he's negotiating with Frederick, Frederick the Wise. All of a sudden, Miltitz shows up on Frederick the Wise's door. Yeah, and and so there's a Miltitz and a, an ambitious man ready to take on this assignment. Uh, he doesn't quite have the theological capability to tell Luther what he needs to recant, um, but. Frederick the Wise does catch up with, uh, or Miltitz, I mean, Miltitz, Miltitz ca- ca- yeah. catches up with Frederick the Wise at Altenburg. So Altenburg is a, a city that's just a little bit south of Leipzig, and uh, it's a uh, on the way back from Augsburg, kind of. And, oh, okay, okay. Um, there is uh, still today there in in Altenburg, uh, kind of an interesting mixture. Um, Altenburg today is. A good expression of the East German state with a lot of block housing. The East German state got rid of the old downtown and built up all these uh, concrete apartment blocks. And then at the end of uh, the Berlin Wall falling and the reunification, uh, Germany came in there with a lot of money to restore the downtown and eliminate some of that East German housing. Oh, really? I didn't know that. So uh, 
So so Altenburg has been restored to its. It has now again the, kind a, of a downtown. A, some of its former glory. Yeah. So, so he catches up with uh, Frederick the Wise there. Frederick knew the discussion with Kajetin had gone poorly, that things were turning against him and Luther, and he saw an opportunity with Miltitz to play for some time, extend... See, he had thought with Kajetin the negotiations had come to an end and things were accelerating to a great conflict. And with Miltitz, Frederick the Wise now has an opportunity to extend the negotiation where he thought it was the fourth quarter the game was over and they had lost and now they were picking up their gear and going home suddenly he finds there's an overtime yeah there's this guy who shows up who says hey he doesn't know the game's over he doesn't know the game's over and and he and he says i'm willing to negotiate and so frederick the wise sees this as an opportunity you know what i'm ready to negotiate let's let's play ball here and we'll keep this game going and Let's see what happens. Now, so Frederick the Wise is uh, calling Luther to Altenburg to negotiate with Miltitz. Now, so Luther writes about this conversation, and he says that uh, in the greeting, uh, Miltitz betrayed the counsel of his heart toward me when he said, Oh, Martin, I believed you were some aged theologian who, sitting behind the stove, disputed thus with himself. Now I see you are still young and strong. If I had 25,000 armed men... I do not believe I could take you to Rome, for I have sounded out the people's mind all along the way to learn what they thought of you. Behold, where I found one standing for the Pope, three stood for you against the Pope. Miltitz is actually revealing the weakness of his position. Where Cajetan had come with the great magnificence of Rome and had made Luther feel like either you come with us or you're nothing. Miltitz reminds Luther of the negotiating position that Luther has. Miltitz essentially shares the playbook with Luther and says to Luther, I've got nothing. What do you got? <laughs> Who plays poker like that? <laughs> nah, nah, you know, that's, that's worth a, a, a little drink here. So, so they come to a four-point agreement, right? Well, and it starts with Miltitz says to recant. And Luther says, what do you want me to That's, recant from? Yeah, yeah. And Luther finds out Miltitz doesn't know theology and, and can't demonstrate any reason why he should recant. And so Luther says, all right, you don't know why I should recant, so how about we just skip the recanting thing? And so the four-point agreement ends up having nothing to do with revoking, recanting, or pulling back any statements. So so the, the, the four points are, uh, the, the first one was that Luther is going to apologize to the Pope. For being too harsh. For being too harsh. Not yeah. not for actually what he said, but how he said it. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of an interesting... And then, so he, he, he says, uh, uh, Luther's going to apologize to the Pope for being so vehement regarding indulgences. And the second point is he's going to encourage all to obedience. This is an interesting thing. It, it demonstrates maybe in these four points, Luther hasn't come to a complete break yet. He still thinks that there is some worldly uh, human reasons to find obedience to the Pope. Um, He has already disregarded any eternal spiritual relationship between the Pope and the everlasting church. But in this one, he's saying for the sake of order, there may be a reason for obedience. So, so he's, he's, he's putting that out there. And the third point, uh, he's going to remain silent if his opponents remain silent. And so it's the idea of, I'm not going to accelerate the argument. I'm not going to keep arguing if they don't keep arguing. 
So the interesting thing about this is, as, as you read through Luther and you read what he says, forty-five years, or I guess, uh, I guess, was it forty-five years later or thirty years later or whatever it is, For between when so fifteen nineteen and then it's the preface to the writings of uh, fifteen forty-five that he's writing. Okay, so twenty-five years later, roughly. So roughly about twenty-five years later, he's he's recounting this, and the, this is the one point he remembers or he really brings out. Yeah, he says, "Hey." I promised to be quiet if my opponents would be quiet. And th- and this isn't the only time he says it. I, I was looking at his table talks and everything else, and he's constantly referencing this uh, this portion of the agreement. He I've never seen him mention the other three points, but he comes to this this point yeah. over and over again. I I'll be quiet and he saw it seems like looking back as as he ages, this is the critical point, the one that I'm going to be quiet it, if my opponents will be quiet. And that word quiet makes it sound like it's uh, just a detente, uh, just a, a mutual assured, not going to talk about it. But it's important to see Luther was uh, a person who desired and was eager for peace. He did not like disturbance in the church. He worried about the witness this would give. And so, uh, having been drawn into disturbances by force and driven by necessity to have the arguments that he did, he understood that it would be good for the church to have peace. That doesn't mean he was going to be silent about the gospel. It doesn't mean he was going to be silent about the hope and promise we should have in Jesus Christ through our faith and not by our works. But he wasn't going to attack. So, and then uh, sometimes I hear a f- another point that that there was a requirement to reprimand Mil- uh, a Tetzel. And, and you know, that's sort of, I'm, I'm not entirely yeah. clear on that one. Yeah, I read as well that Luther understood his silent silence was going to be contingent on Miltitz after visiting with him in Altenburg, then going to speak to Tetzel and speaking to Albert of Mainz okay. and assuring that they would be silent as well. So it's kind of like the beginning of Miltitz's journey through Germany was Luther, the next stop was Tetzel, and the next spot was supposed to be Albert of Mainz. You get these three guys to be quiet. We go forward. All right. All right. So they have this agreement. They, they finally, they, they, what happens next? Well, that day, though, finishes with Miltitz maybe thinking that uh, one of those things that they agreed to was a recanting. It's almost like in a speed of words, Miltitz thought he heard Luther was going to recant, and Luther never was going to recant. So the next day when the letter that Luther was going to sign, speaking of his agreement to these four points, Miltitz notices there's nothing about recanting. All right. All right. And so then at that point, Miltitz decides that the recantation wasn't absolutely necessary and that Luther should just stay quiet. So it's kind of a, Luther's pretty certain, here are the four points I agreed to. And it seems like Miltitz left that day thinking a recanting was still coming. And it never did, of course. Right. So Miltitz leaves. Luther uh, goes. Um, I mean, and so then Miltitz and Tetzel talk. Tetzel is the indulgence seller From who that. was the catalyst for the entire affair. He is a Dominican. Um, much of the arguments between Luther and any other bad guy, the bad guys are always the Dominicans. Luther <laughs> is always saying the good guys are the Augustinians. Right. And, yeah. and those who are Catholic will understood that the, these different orders are not some monolithic all Rome. There is within them the a difference between the friars of the Augustinians and the Dominicans. Yeah, and 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 for our Catholic listeners, we should probably 
probably be careful of having bad guys in all this. <laughs> yes, that's right. I guess the, the the Catholic listeners, just take what we said, flip it around, and you'll be fine. You know? <laughs> so, that's, so um, let's see. So then, then we get into, so Miltitz, actually, he does do what he said he's going to do, right? He goes from Luther, and the next next stop is to go see Tetzel. And Oh, wait a second. They had dinner that night. That's one Oh, yeah. Night. Luther and Miltitz have dinner. They have and, a great dinner. And they had they had a wonderful time. Luther says what an enjoyable time he had. I mean, 25 years later, he's talking about this dinner that he had with, with Miltitz and what a great time he had. You know? It does speak to the character of having table fellowship. And, and that sense of you can argue, you come to conclusion, and then you share break, and break bread together. Yeah, I mean, these guys are talking about, and what's funny is that, and you see this over and over again, and we'll see it with the Leipzig debate uh, coming up. They're still collegial. They're they're very collegial. It, it it's when you consider that these are the questions that split the the church in the West, right? That that this is these are extremely significant questions. These people are still very collegial. So different from we'll say from today's political environment right. where, you know, much smaller issues get people almost to fisticuffs, but it's, it's uh it was a definitely a different era. So th- they have this great dinner. They, then the next day, Miltitz hops on his, on his horse and off he goes or in his carriage and off he goes. Yeah. So he finds Tetzel and uh, he w- was vehement in his threats uh, against Tetzel um, saying that Tetzel had uh, brought this tragedy to the church. And, Luther later finds out about how Miltitz and Tetzel talked and how this had broken Tetzel. Um, and so here's what Luther writes about this. He goes that, uh, when I found this out before his death, when I found out how much Tetzel was harmed by this conversation with Miltitz, he took it personally. Luther writes, I comforted him with a letter written benignly asking him to be of good cheer and not to fear my memory. Uh, but perhaps he had come to victim of his conscience and of the Pope's indignation. Johann uh, Tetzel, that indulgent seller uh, who had provided the occasion for Luther to write the 95 Thesis, he died in 1519 in, in July. So January 1519 is when Miltitz and Tetzel talk. And, and Tetzel is dead within eight months. Eight, six months. Six, six months. So, so what we have here is, and, and what we, it's sort of hard for us to wrap our heads around it from Tetzel's perspective. And I had to give this some thought. You have to sort of, at least what I imagine is you've got this guy, you know, Tetzel's there. He's already, you know, he's, he's left his, his job of being a, an indulgence seller. And then this guy shows up from the Pope. Somebody who has the authority to put people in jail and burn them at the stake and all sorts of things, you know, and and so Tetzel has this guy show up and this guy is full of, you know, threats and and accusations and and Tetzel just fears for his life and it eventually breaks him and he's he dies a broken man mm-hmm. and it's. It's one of those things that, and, uh, you know, Luther did the right thing, I think, you know, saying, listen, this wasn't about you. Because Luther, right from the very beginning, says that this is about scholasticism. This is about bringing uh, Aristotelian logic into Christianity and having God stand 
under logic, where God does not stand over and is not the supreme being. That's what Luther was criticizing. That's what Luther was actually criticizing. And this whole Tetzel thing was a sidebar to Luther. I think it shows to me with the way Luther and Tetzel and and Karl von Miltitz address this, that fracturing the church is not something we should ever seek. We should never look for an opportunity to bring schism, disturbance, and frustration to the church. It, it may happen. In fact, it did happen here in the 16th century. But Tetzel's grieved by it. Luther's grieved by it. There is an ache in the heart when we cannot agree as brothers and sisters about what uh, the church is for. And that's, that's, that's obvious even, even in this very charged environment that that is that's 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 very real that that ache in the heart is very real for all the players well that's kind of a heavy way to finish this section so let's break it up with a little beer break okay time for a beer break now now what what beer do we have this week so we've got from a can the kiwana brewing company the red jacket amber ale you know the idea of this coming from a can it's the uh we had the i think we had um an all-day session uh from yeah, we did, but mostly it's from glass. All but the- there is this delivery of cans for, for uh, these uh, craft brews. Is you know, feels strange. I feel like if it's going to be a fancy craft brew, it has to come from glass. But the can helps preserve it longer on the shelf. Oh, is that well? I I personally love the Kiwanaw Brewing Co- Company. We my you know Josh went there for he went to uh, his uh, graduate from MTU. Presumably, he's not a graduate of the Kiwana Brewing Company. <laughs> well, I think he's that, too. <laughs> he's that, too. Okay. <laughs> I know I graduated from the Kiwana Brewing Company when I was up there. It's it's actually, it's a, a, it's a, very, it's a beloved brewing, brewery up there in uh, Houghton, Michigan. Okay. And uh, it's a, what is it, a nine-hour drive from here, from uh, the, the... So Brighton we may not Arbor. get a road trip there. I don't think so. I don't think so. Although it's a good beer. Uh, it, it's, uh, it was one of the first... It was actually the first time I went to uh, a, a brewery, and uh, and they didn't serve food. It's uh, it's truly what what they they, they mentioned that it's a truly a microbrewery. So it's more like the beer garden idea that you'll go there to enjoy the beer. Yeah, yeah, and and I've, I've seen that since, but that was the first place I went to that had you know that was just beer. And when you go, and if you want to get food. You have to go next door. There's a pizza place next door. You, you know, it's still a great place to hang out. And the out can good. has the the red uh, copper color that is appropriate for the UP as well. Oh, absolutely! So good beer. This is one of my favorites, and uh, so I I wanted to make sure that we got it on the show here. So, so how do they refer to the Kiwana Brewing Company shorthand? If to show, what would I show if I was a local? How would I refer to this? Well, they they call it KBC. All right. So now, so like it, Wisconsin, you got the PBR. Paps Blue Ribbon. So now KBC, I can add to my acronym. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So now you can be an insider. Yeah, I'm going to have a little KBC uh, Amber Ale here. So this is uh, an excellent beer. Really enjoy this one. <sighs> it is an easy drink. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, before we go, we wanted to talk about something else that, that came up in the same era. It's from a different document that Luther... Well, it's offered. from the same... So where he writes about von Miltitz... He also writes about his discovery of the righteousness of God. They're both from his preface to the Latin writings of 1545. Okay. So we're staying within the timeline of the event. We've been looking at different documents, uh, starting with the 95 Theses and 1517, 1518, 1519. So we're talking about events 
that are in the winter of 1518 and 1519, but we're using uh, the document to kind of shape our conversation is Luther's preface to the Latin writings of 1545 that are found within volume 34 of Luther's works. Now, one of the big things with Luther is he was always a little embarrassed. About, and I think we may have mentioned this in previous episodes. Luther seems like he's always been a little embarrassed about his writings from this era. Well, I think some of it is that there is um, not this just like crystal clear, this is what I'm writing about. There is a movement of his writing. Uh, and it, it, he is an occasional writer, is the way I heard um, someone describe it recently. It's not that he occasionally writes, like sometimes he's not going to write for a long time, and then he writes, but the, he writes about occasions. Ah. So as an occasional writer, he's writing about the occasions that are happening in his life, which means that he doesn't always have a very systematic uh, study of something. Instead, as an occasion happens, he writes about it. And it makes it great for this kind of podcast, this kind of discussion where we're, we're mixing the history, because you almost need to know the history to talk about the theology, or Luther's specific Because writings. he's responding so much he's, to what is happening. Right. Up until 1545, Luther's saying, hey, I don't want to write my, uh, you know, I don't want to gather everything together because there's so much garbage in there and so confusing and we, there, we need something that's, you know, let's let's just focus on stuff like the Augsburg Confession. Yeah, and I think some of it's also his desire to point to the power of God's word to work in his uh, theology rather than him working in his theology. Yeah, he says several times, you know, burn all my books, burn everything, you know, just keep the word of God. Mm-hmm. And and so that's that's sort of one of the things that he keeps hammering on and hammering on. And, and this is another example. In f- 1545, he's saying, just throw it all out. I don't care. Just- so he doesn't throw it all out, though, thankfully for us. <laughs> right. uh, so he agrees to publish his Latin works, and he writes as a preface to his Latin works a short summary of the major events in his life. So in the preface to the Latin works, he remembers back to the winter of 1518, 1519. Uh, so in the the fall, November, October time of 1518, he's meeting with Card- Cardinal Cajetan. January, uh, was it 5, 6? Of January 5 and 6 of 1519, he's meeting with von Miltitz. So this is right in between those two. This this event that we're going to talk about next happens somewhere in that same time frame. So as much as he's meeting with these representatives from Rome, he is also reading the Psalms. And he's getting ready to, in his look at the Psalms, to, to lecture about them. And as he's considering the Psalms, he is uh, balancing and, and trying to understand the Psalms alongside of the recent work he's been doing studying St. Paul. Now the the there was a there was he's going through the Psalms and there's a there's a verse from St. Paul that really is sticking in his mind. It's verse it's chapter 1 verse 17. And how does that read, Mike? That one says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith." And so Paul, as he's writing that to the Romans, is quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. So there is this already in Romans, uh, Paul interacting with the Old Testament. And now Luther is using the same passage from Romans and Habakkuk and all of this soup of the New Testament to interact with the Psalms. So Luther writes, and I'm just I'm going to read what Luther wrote in his mm-hmm. uh, Latin uh, preface to the Latin works. He says... 
Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he would be placated with my satisfaction. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. So it's, it's, you know, he's talking about the righteous shall live by faith, I think, is really what he's referencing, this, this term, the righteous shall be, live by faith. And he knew he was not righteous, that he was a sinner, that he had sinful thoughts, he had sinful uh, uh, desires, he had, you know, that constantly having sinful impulses and whereas poorly placed words you know what didn't help the poor when he walked by them whatever it was he was and he felt very uh um, he felt under attack yes. that he justly deserves the wrath and punishment of god and and this balance of the righteous the faithful and the righteousness of God, he hears these words and he doesn't measure up. Now, one of the things that a lot of folks, uh, especially non-Lutherans, are, might have trouble with is the idea uh, Luther's idea of like the Ten Commandments. Because uh, I know when I was a Catholic, I, I didn't have the same sort of training on the Ten Commandments that the Lutherans have on the Ten Commandments. And, and what Luther does in his large catechism is he goes through and he, he I think it's like 50 pages, 40 pages of just the Ten Commandments. You know, That's just, the largest section in the large catechism. And, and he just, ter- and it's, and he basically, you get a view of Luther's idea on the Ten Commandments and what he was measuring himself against when he was at this point. Yeah. And, and so. And as Luther writes about the Ten Commandments, there is going to be no minimizing. There's going to be no reducing. There's no changing of the measuring stick so that you can get far enough. If you're going to run a hundred meter race, you can't make it 90 meters and say you finished. It has to be a hundred meters. And, and the law is in its full weight against Luther here. So just to look at, for instance, the fifth commandment, um, as the way Luther numbered him, I know that those who might uh, be from a Presbyterian or Baptist background will number the commandments differently. But in the Lutheran and Catholic Church, the fifth commandment is you shall not murder. And, and so start with the basic. It's against the law to unjustly kill anyone. Okay, so that, that one makes sense. So, but Christ goes, goes further. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Christ looks at each of the commandments. And, and what does he say about there is it's not just about the action, it's about a motive. Uh, it is not appropriate to uh, condemn or judge another. That would be the same as to murder. To call your brother a fool is as... So character assassination is, is, is sin. Yeah. Well, and to call a fool actually is to look back in the Proverbs and to say a fool believes in heart there is no God. To call your brother a fool is to call him someone who doesn't believe in God. Oh, so, so it's, it's not just more... to call him like a, a jester or call him a silly guy. To call someone a fool is to say they don't even have the wisdom to believe in God. So, so this is actually, I'm going to say in today's day and age, that would be considered even more subtle. So these, these subtle, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. you know, that your, your, or that your faith is not strong enough. I would assume that would also. And you know, so Luther is, is feeling this and that's just one law. So then both of these are about the negatives, the prohibitions of the law. Don't actually kill anybody unjustly and and don't destroy someone with your words. But then Luther looks at each of the commandments also and sees a positive attribution towards behavior that is directed to us. So it's not only that we don't unjustly kill, but we should find a way 
to say a good word about our neighbor. So then Luther's looking at it and he's saying, well, did I say a good word about so-and-so? Did I say a good word about so-and-so? Was I always looking at things from the best possible perspective that puts people in the best possible light? Well, no, I wasn't. So, And he does this exercise for each of the Ten Commandments, looking at them in all of their subtlety. And how, for instance, in the Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It's a sin to be attracted to somebody other than your spouse. That's adultery, to have lust in your heart. It's a, a sin to be proud uh, of yourself for doing something good. So, so these sins are piling up on Luther. And it's easy to see why this would create an extremely disturbed conscience. Um, and his inability to be able to meet the Ten Commandments, to go all 100 meters in the race, uh, then runs him up against this quote from St. Paul in Romans. For in the gospel, the right, righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as written, the righteous shall live by faith. So so one way of looking at that, the righteous shall live by faith, is that, well, you have... And, well, what, what was Luther saying here when he when he's complaining about that? It's, it's that you don't have to have the Ten Commandments, not just the Ten Commandments. On top of that is now the gospel has become a law, right? So to look at, one is, um, well merit of of doing something because you are morally good is just the beginning of things. Anybody can eventually develop the habit in relationship to their neighbor to be morally right with their neighbor. Okay. You take it, the next step is, can you have faith? And and this is that almost that the the character of the church was to direct people to moral rightness. And maybe the select few can have a devotional heart. So, and, so now, now there's a two. There's a new law. Well, what Luther has always been seeing is that moral behavior is good, and a few people will actually have a devotional heart. And now, it had been seen for many that that first part, moral behavior, would be enough, and it's almost like a bonus to have the devotional heart. But now he finds out what he had been thinking of as a bonus. That devotional heart becomes of necessity. When, when he reads that, and the, the righteous, righteous shall live by faith, faith, he thinks to be morally right means not only do you know the moral behavior that's expected of you, but that righteous person that knows those moral behaviors will also have faith. And so this means that there is no wiggle room. It's not like you can just train someone in the habits of moral behavior. The righteous shall live by faith is an accusation that you must have faith. So now I'm going to read Luther's next little section here. He goes when his reaction to this, as he's as he's considering this, and the, mm-hmm. you know he's he's thinking about, gee, I, I've got this new law I've got to fill, fulfill. He says, "It is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments, without God adding pain to pain." by the gospel, when the gospel threatens us with his righteousness and wrath. And it's a paraphrase a little bit, but that's... Well, and you know, the righteous shall live by faith. We see it as such a hopeful thing. But faith was seen not as a gift from God. Faith was seen as a work that you would develop within your heart. And that's why it was such an accusation. When we hear faith, we hear gift. When I hear faith, I hear God, through the Holy Spirit, calling, gathering, and enlightening me to believe in Jesus Christ. 
when Luther, before this winter of 1518, 1519 that he's writing about, when he talked about faith, he was talking about an activity of a person in their their actions and in their words and their heart. Um, so this is a tough spot for Luther because he, he is here in judgment, not only against moral behavior, which he had always understood, but he just can't get away from the fact that God is even bringing him to judgment against his faith. No. So, so he has to deal with this. So he, so he's 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 thinking about this. He's thinking about this, and and what he. Uh, I'm just going to go back to uh, uh, 25 years later mm-hmm. during the when he's writing. He's looking back on this, and uh, yeah, and, he introduces what you're about to read, saying, "At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words." Uh, so yeah, so now he says uh, he's looking at it totally wrong. Uh, God, now he's saying that you know, as he looks at the context, he says that that it's not uh, de- God isn't demanding us to be perfectly righteous in His thoughts and actions and our thoughts and actions, but that and that God recognizes that that's beyond our our capabilities. So so now Luther is saying that when Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed, he's going back to that. The righteousness of God is revealed. The previous couple of he looks in the context. Phrase, this the is context. a great thing for anybody that's getting to a tough passage in Scripture, and and you're confounded by what the words say. The first thing I ask you to do, look at the context. So now he's looking at the context. He's looking at that the the, the righteousness righteous shall of, live by faith. He looks at in context of the righteousness of God shall be revealed. So now righteousness of God is not an activity of me. Right now, it's an activity of God. It's a, uh, yeah, this is the righteousness of God is revealed, and the righteousness shall live by faith. So now it's it's that linkage that now all of a sudden he sees that that uh, it's a he sees this this his, his doctrine of a passive righteousness that it's the God God's righteousness is active, and we are receiving it. We're receiving it. This definition of righteousness as a character, an attribute, an action of God that moves into this world and changes poor, lost, condemned sinners. That's what we're talking about today in the second half of our podcast. How Luther takes this phrase, the righteousness of God, and removes it from the context of wrath and fury and puts it in the context of promise. And gift. Gift. Gospel. The gospel for him now is not something that is... uh, uh, an attack, but it's something that changes us. And he says, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Their totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory, and I found in other terms an analogy, the work of God, that is, what God does in us. The power of God which makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Luther is talking about an awakening that he is finding rooted not in just some mystical experience, but in reading the Word of God. So basically, what this is is that uh, this gets back to the concept of you know all good things from come from God. That wisdom comes from God, and that it's it's God's wisdom that is is passively given to us, and and, and that when when we have our own ideas, that they tend to be wrong. You know that it's and this puts the context of his discussion of the law now into place. Why is he so insistent 
on not changing the measuring mark of the law and describing the law in its full weight and its full judgment is because we need to know how utterly lost we are and how much we need the gift of the righteousness of God. There's not one inkling, not one spark, not one thing within me that can turn towards God. And it's one of those things when you're when you're looking at the Lutheran theology uh, or the Lutheran doctrine on sin on the Ten Commandments, they pile it on. Luther piles it on. It's sort of yeah. like you know every little thing is just another sin. You know, if you turn to the right, it's a sin. If you turn to the left, it's a sin. If you if you look up, it's a sin. If you look down, it's a sin. No matter what you do, it's sinful. Over you know, it, there's only a very narrow path that's left. And what this does is, and Luther can, Lutheran theology. He shines a big light on that narrow path, and that narrow path. It's a gift. It's the gift of Jesus. It's a gift. And so he calls the righteousness of God passive righteousness. What does this mean? Well, uh, first of all, it means that, uh, that for example, uh, all our good works are, are tainted by sin, right? Uh, that, that... Everything I do for my neighbor uh, without God in my life is tainted by the vanity of trying to save myself or protect myself. Every good thing is, in fact, tainted by sin and imperfect before God. So when, when we go to passive righteousness, an active righteousness would come from inside of us and that would be tainted and this and the so that's that's why this this everything from within us this uh, uh that all good works even the good works that come from us are tainted by sin the only good work is that work which is done in the name of christ and through christ any other work is is not sufficient and, and so every good work has to be perfect because god is perfect and now this is all dealing with the vertical relationship it's helpful in this discussion of passive righteousness that Luther is describing that vertical relationship we have with God, which makes us right with God and gives us the eternal promise of paradise with God. In that horizontal relationship, that relationship you will have, Mike, with your neighbor, um, you can be nice to your neighbor and not know Jesus. Sure. Um, now, the motive, the the inner heart that describes why you are doing that for your neighbor that that could be tainted by sin. But the fact that you help your neighbor rake his leaves, well, that's helpful to your neighbor one way or the other. Sure, sure. And But this is, one one is to bring glory to myself and one is to bring glory to God. And, and they both look the same from the outside. I'm raking the leaves. So this passive exchange happens because I know I need it. Uh, this gift is ours. And, and the, the call of Romans one seventeen now isn't faith as a work. Faith is one more thing you got to do. Now faith is just receiving the gift. So, and that's one of the things, that, even on his deathbed. And, and we'll probably... He writes on a piece of paper and he's holding in his hand. We are all beggars. That is for sure. We all are standing before the cross. We're all kneeling before the cross. We're all at the cross begging for the mercy of Jesus Christ because we know that nowhere else in all of eternity is found our hope. So that's, this is the, the reason we spent so much time talking about this is because this is a major, major turning point in Luther's life. This, this, this realization of passive righteousness, this, is, this continues to reverberate through today. And, and and in our in our ecumenical discussions, it really still comes back to this point, this this moment when Luther realized that uh, this con- this doctrine of passive righteousness. Now Luther is never one again to cause schism or disruption in the church. So as he's coming to this reading of the Psalms and this reading of to Romans, um, 
he doesn't want to just be something completely innovative. There should be some assurance, he believes, that what he has found in the Word should have been seen by someone else before him. It's always sketchy. If you read the Word of God and you come up with something that no one else has ever seen in the Word, maybe your reading is wrong. And so Luther looks back at St. Augustine and he finds in St. Augustine's uh, book, The Spirit and the Letter, he says, contrary to, I found he too interpreted God's righteousness in a similar way as the righteousness with which God clothes us when he justifies us. So Luther finds that his teaching, his comfort, his hope in the righteousness of God is in fact in continuity with Augustine. So this is... I think that's that that is the the critical thing and that's part of the reason why he was willing to risk death even for this. He he saw it in line not just as a revelation for himself, but he saw it as a revelation that harkened back to Augustine was what 400 AD, yeah. something like that. I mean, this is this is this is a teaching that was part of the church for over a, a thousand years. But it had been... Yeah, with the age of scholasticism that begins with Thomas Aquinas, um, 12th century, and the introduction of Aristotle into Europe, reason and logic really started to silence and mute the Word of God, and Luther is bringing it back. Well, what a wonderful episode we've had. We've enjoyed the KBC. Uh, maybe I, I tried no, too hard. No, you said <laughs> KBC's Red Jacket uh, Amber Ale, excellent beer. I uh, want to say our thank yous. Uh, thanks to our sound guy, Josh. We appreciate St. Paul Lutheran Church and uh, support and encouragement we're now, receiving there. Hamburg, Michigan, and that's uh, Missouri Synod. Uh, we also want to uh, recognize our source materials. Uh, a couple of them that I, I really liked was uh, Luther, A Guide for the Perplexed. That that has a lot of uh, a lot of good little nuggets in there of, of history and what, what things were happening around the, the discussions. And then a, a biography by James Kittleson uh, called Luther the Reformer. Uh, then also volume 34 of Luther's works and volume yeah. 48. Yeah, 48 I think was the one with the Latin uh, the Latin preface was I think. Well, that's 40. in 34. Oh, that's in 34. Okay. But he also writes in some of his table talk and other things. That's what it was. Milton. That's what it was. Uh, of course the good people at the Catholic Encyclopedia um, uh, uh, and Luther's Large Catechism. I think everybody caught, picked that one up. Encyclopedia.com. A great resource if you're looking for some more Reformation uh, nuggets of good stuff. Uh, Reformation500.csl.edu. This is uh, the Reformation website that Concordia Seminary in St. Louis has prepared. Reformation500.csl.edu. That's a great website. I really enjoy that one. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can shoot us a, an email at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. graceontap-podcast.com is our website where you can go to to find any of the episodes or any other extra articles we add. And uh, we also have a Facebook page yes, that you can find. Just type in the Facebook search bar, Grace on Tap, and I think we're the first group that comes up. Yeah, it certainly says, I think it might uh, highlight it as podcast or something. It might be a guy with a book out there or something called Grace on Tap, but... Uh, and then uh, what we would really welcome uh, any any reviews you put on iTunes. Those reviews really help out. They make our podcast more visible to others as well and gives people a sense of what, they, what they're signing up for. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, also, if you have any suggestions, anything, we'd love to hear from you. Have well, a great I think, day. I think that does it. Thanks. <laughs>